That's good. Amazing. You all have a word. You don't know it. Josh's word is amazing. He says it a lot. You might say good. Every husband knows the word good because when you've asked how your day was, how you're feeling, what's going on in the brain, in your heart, good or fine or okay. No? Not fine? Not fine. Okay. Okay. Good. Or, or a grunt. You can get a grunt. That's got nothing to do with today's message. That was just for free. Hey, those um, Christmas Eve little flies, and if you want to be involved, if you don't get them in the bucket and you want to put them in info desk as well, you can. I'm just saying there's two options for you to, to be involved in that way. Okay, we are continuing our series on the life of David. We are up to part seven. This is the longest series ever. And today is called Game of Thrones and it has nothing to do with the show. I just, the only thing the same is the name. That's it. And I've got some of your attention straight away. So it has worked and achieved its purpose. Last time we looked at David's life and we looked at how his negative thinking And thinking to himself over and over again, got himself into trouble, got himself into a place where he had to lie, got himself into a place where he was in in big trouble. But then to get out of that trouble, at his lowest point, we read that he encouraged himself in the Lord. And so we have a choice between thinking to ourselves and overthinking or encouraging ourselves in the Lord. And something that we all need to learn how to do in our everyday life. And that was last time. Today... We're looking at, like I said, Game of Thrones. And we're looking at how David went from being a fugitive to being on the throne. He went this. Today we're going to look at how he was crowned as the king. But before we get there, there's a little bit of ground to cover. So it says this. We were reading last week about David encouraging himself in the Lord. How God restored to him everything that was taken from him. While that was going on... The Israelite nation were at war with the Philistines. So David is a fugitive from Israel. He's on the run. He's hiding out in enemy land. And back in his home country, the the nation that he's fled from is at war. And the king is King Saul. And we read this, that in this particular battle, the Philistines are having a crushing win over King Saul and the Israelite army. In 1 Samuel 31 verse 6, we read this. So Saul, his three sons, his armor bearer and his troops all died together that same day. So the king of Israel, King Saul, his three sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, Abinadab, he's having a dab loose. Is that a dad joke or what? Abinadab and Malkshua, there's some great names for you if you're pregnant and you're thinking about what you want to name your kids. Malkshua, there you go, all done. Um, They all die in battle. It's a victorious day for the Philistines, but it's a sad day for the nation of Israel. David, meanwhile, has returned to Zilkag after fighting the Amalekites, Amalekites, all these long names. And David is waiting for news of the battle. So there's a battle going on that David wanted to be part of, but he couldn't be part of. King Saul, his sons, have been wiped out in that battle. And David is waiting back in the town where he lives, waiting for the news about what happened in this battle. And we read that in, in, in 2 Samuel that news of the battle reaches David, reaches his men. He's told that King Saul is dead. He's told that his son Jonathan and his brothers have died in battle and that the Philistines have had a great win. And let's read how they respond to this news. Verse 11, David and his men tore their clothes in sorrow when they heard the news. 
They mourned and they wept and they fasted all day for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the Lord's army and the nation of Israel because they had died by the sword that day. Think about this. I've talked about it before in this series. David and his men have suffered much at the hand of Saul. King Saul has fought David, has chased him, has tried to take his life on repeated occasions. David has done nothing wrong, but he was hated by Saul. He was chased by Saul. It forced David and his men to flee from their homes. King Saul's action caused them to live as fugitives and to hide in caves. And now when they hear that their oppressor, their enemy, their torturer has died in battle, they are deeply saddened, they weep, they tear their clothes, they mourn and they fast for the day. This is not the reaction that you would expect when you hear the news that someone that has given you so much grief and so much trouble and now they're gone and they are devastated. How would you react? I don't think I would react in that same way. At the very least, there would be a sense of relief. Thank God that's over. Thank God they're not going to be chasing me or pursuing me anymore. But David and his men's reaction is so different to what we would expect. It's so different to what human nature would be. That when someone has made your life miserable, when they pass away, your reaction is that you are deeply upset and you mourn. You know, their reaction tells me something. Tells me something very powerful. Tells me that forgiveness and unforgiveness is a choice. It's a choice that we all are faced with. All of us regularly in our lives will be faced with this decision. Will I forgive or will I hold on? Will I keep a grudge? Will I keep an account? And I want to go there this morning a little bit about forgiveness and unforgiveness. Matthew 5, Jesus said these words from the message translation. I'm telling you to love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. When someone gives you a hard time and takes your car space at the shops, remember, I also have the imagination translation going on in my Bible. Respond with the energies of prayer. For then you are working out of your true selves, your God-created selves. This is what God does. He gives his best. The sun to warm and the rain to nourish to everyone, regardless. The good and the bad, the nice and the nasty. If all you do is love the lovable, do you expect a bonus? Because anyone can do that. Confronting, I know. Because he's talking to all of us. And you might be here this morning and think, I don't have enemies. I don't have people that are trying to take my life, like Saul. But we all have people that have given us a hard time at some stage in our life. We all have people that have done the wrong thing by us, lied to us, betrayed us, hurt us, said things to us. We've all got people like that in our world. And Jesus calls us, to pray for them, to respond with the energies of prayer is the way the message puts it. Paul addresses this same issue of forgiveness in his letter to the Ephesians. He says in chapter 4, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. 
Instead, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. Last week I said that I don't just want to preach a message that we can hear on a Sunday, but something that we can live through the week. And I think the choice of forgiveness and unforgiveness is something that will affect all of our lives every day. As long as we're interacting with other human beings, we are going to have to face this at some stage. And you today might have people in your world that you're holding on forgiveness to. You might not have anyone. But if you're alive for much longer than a week, you are going to encounter this at some stage. So it's applicable to all of us. And I personally have learned a little bit about forgiveness in the last two years. And the way that you learn about forgiveness is by having someone do something to you that you don't like. I've learnt some things, and I'm saying I've learnt because I have not learnt at all. I still have a lot more to learn. But I've learnt this. I've learnt that forgiveness is not a one-off decision or choice. But it's a decision you make over and over and over again. On Friday, I did a wedding for some people from Sydney, and they said, I do, to one another. But who knows that for a marriage to work, you don't just say, I do, on your wedding day. But you say, I do, every single day for the rest of your life committed to each other. It's a choice you make over and over and over again. You keep choosing the other person. You keep choosing to love. You keep choosing to be committed. You keep choosing to be part of that union. And forgiveness is the same. You have to continually choose. You know, I've thought I've forgiven these people that hurt me. And then something happens or I see something or I hear about something and it triggers a response in me that makes me realize I haven't actually forgiven them. I thought I had forgiven them, but there's still more to go. And you will know, right now, everyone, close your eyes. Don't worry, no one's going to take your wallet while your eyes are closed. Close your eyes. Think of a name, someone that's hurt you, done something to you. What's your reaction? That reaction is an indicator of where you are at on your forgiveness journey. You can open your eyes. You can think you've forgiven. You can think I'm not holding any grudges against that person. And then something will happen and it will remind you and you'll have these feelings inside that you do not like and you think, where did that come from? And it's simply an indicator to tell you, hey, there's still more to go on this process of forgiveness. It's not just a once-off. Oh yeah, I've forgiven them. I said a prayer. Let's move on. If only it were that easy. But it's something we do over and over and over again. I'm learning how important prayer is in the forgiveness journey. And you think, oh, that's an obvious answer for a church to say. Pray about it. But here's what I've learned. Two practical things. First off, pray for myself. God, help me to forgive those who have hurt me. We were talking to Ray Andrews earlier this year, and he was telling us a story about how he used to be this pastor in ministry in Coffs Harbour, had a great church, and some, some things happened and some people betrayed him, and really, people close to him really hurt him. And he was like working up on a roof. He'd gone back to a carpentry, and he was on a roof in a stinking hot day, having an argument with God. It's not a good place to have an argument on God on a 40-degree day on a roof doing that. 
But he's saying, God, I, I just, I'm over it. I don't want to do anything anymore. I don't want to be a pastor. I don't want to do ministry. I, I, I don't want to forgive them. I know I need to, but I don't want to. I'm not willing to forgive. And he felt God say something along these lines. Are you willing for me to make you willing? And that's a great starting place. Because sometimes things can happen and we go, I don't want to forgive that person. I've got no human desire to forgive them. But if you can get to the place where you go, I'm not willing, but I'm willing to be made willing. Holy Spirit, you have permission to work in my heart and my attitudes and my soul and my thoughts to make me willing to be willing is a great starting place. And Ray says that on that day in that heat on the roof, he said, God, okay, I'm willing for you to make me willing. And he went on that journey of forgiveness, of learning to forgive those people. And it's a prayer that I pray regularly for those that have hurt me. God, help me to forgive. Make me willing. Make me able. Do a work within my heart so that I'm able to forgive these people. Hey, Dan and Ness. Is your baby here? Can you? Oh, in the car? Okay. Can you go get him? Ah, we have a new baby in church. Isn't that good? You're the mo- okay. Well done. You too, Dan. <laughs> no, well done, Ness. It's so good to have the new Theodore. Can I call him Theo or is that not acceptable? No, Theo's okay? Okay, welcome to church, Theodore. Fill out a welcome pack afterwards. Come to our Connect Lounge. That would be good. All right, we were talking about forgiveness and I got distracted. So there's the prayer for yourself. God, help me to forgive. Do a work in my heart. But then there's also another prayer. And it's a prayer for them. Like Jesus instructed us to do. Pray for your enemies or pray for those who have hurt you. And this is not the prayer. Dear Lord God, strike them down and make them pay for what they have done to me. That is not the prayer you pray about them. As tempting as that one is to pray... That's not what God had in mind when he said to pray for those who have hurt you. I've been challenged, and I felt God say this to me, pray that I would bless them. Pray that I would prosper them. Pray for them like you would pray for your own kids, or for your spouse, or for your friends, or for your loved ones. Ouch! That is not easy to do. That is not a natural response. But forgiveness is a choice. And unforgiveness is a choice as well. And by refusing to forgive, refusing to pray for yourself that God would do a work in your heart, refusing to pray for them, you're choosing to hold on to it. You're choosing to hold on to a grudge. And you don't want to carry that around. There's a quote. And Joyce Meyer uses it, but other people have said something similar. That harboring unforgiveness is like drinking poison and hoping that your enemy will die. That's what unforgiveness and holding on to a grudge does in our life. We have a choice. Forgiveness or unforgiveness. I'm going to move on because it's a little bit tense in the room. (laughs) But all of us face this decision. And when I read David's response of hearing that the man that caused him so much grief and so much pain and so much trouble and his response is grief 
and prayer and mourning and deeply distressed. I, sh- I know that he's not holding a grudge against King Saul. I can tell that that's a man who has let go and has done the unforgiveness journey. We saw last week that there was a temptation to fight against him. He was not perfect, but it shows me that he has forgiven. And it's a great encouragement, but also a very challenging thing for us to do. David's response also shows the love that he had for Jonathan. Jonathan was his friend that he swore a lifetime friendship with. Jonathan was someone who saved his life when he was younger, and now Jonathan is dead. So mixed in with the outpouring of grief for King Saul is also the grief and the outpouring of sorrow for his friend Jonathan. A very natural, normal thing to do when a loved one passes. The grief journey is a grief is something that we all do differently. Everyone's journey is different, and it's not something that you just get over and forget about. You know. Um, seeing you guys this morning, Adrian and Linda, I'm mindful that we had the service earlier in the year and we grieved with you then, but for most of us, we we do forget about it. But you guys live that. And we need to be aware for people like Adrian and Linda that have lost a daughter earlier this year. Their grief journey doesn't finish in a few months, but it goes for a lifetime. And we support them in it. We encourage them in it. And we don't judge them in any way on how they're doing their grief journey. Because grief happens to all of us and it's played out in different ways. And I, I, I've been very um, a- admiring of what I, how I've seen you guys do your journey. And I know it's not easy, but I just want you to know that I haven't forgotten either. It's still something that I'm remembered by. And I love the way you guys keep remembering your Livy on the Facebook post and things like that. So well done. We continue to pray for you. Sorry getting distracted babies on this side and different things going on try and focus okay grief he's lost a loved one there's also grief for me here for david uh, the nation of israel the nation has suffered a heavy defeat in battle and even though david is not yet king of israel israel is in his heart he carries a burden for that nation And I think he's upset and distressed because that nation has gone through a lot. So there's a whole range of emotions going on for David. There's the death of Saul. There's the death of his friend. And then there's the nation that he loves and he feels called to that's going through a hard time. And all these factors lead to the grief and sorrow we see amongst David and his men. Let's read what happens next. He's still in the foreign town of Ziklag. And we read this in 2 Samuel chapter 2. After this, David asked the Lord, Should I move back to one of the towns of Judah? Yes, the Lord replied. Then David asked, Which town should I go to? It's getting very specific. To Hebron, the Lord answered. Don't you love that when God just gives you a simple, straightforward answer? That's good, isn't it? He's told to go to Hebron. So David, his men, all their families, they moved to the town of Hebron. They are no longer living as fugitives in foreign lands. They are back in their home country. And here in Hebron, we see the first part of what was spoken over David as a young boy come to pass. Verse 4. Then the men of Judah came to David and anointed him king over the people of Judah. This is only the first part of the promise because while this is happening to David in Hebron, something else is happening elsewhere in Israel. Verses 8 and 9. But Abner, son of Ner, the commander of Saul's army, had already gone to Manahim with Saul's son. Here's a nice long one. 
Ishabesheth. I don't know if I said that right, but it sounds good. There he proclaimed that guy king over Gilead, Jezreel, Ephraim, Benjamin, and the land of the Ashabites, and all the rest of Israel. So what happens here is this. We have two different kings crowned. David is crowned in Hebron over Judah, which is a part of the nation of Israel. But then one of Saul's sons is crowned king over the rest of Israel. So we've got two kings, one nation. They've, they've split. David's been crowned king in one part and Ishabeth in another part. Two kings, one nation. This leads to a civil war, which we're going to read about in a moment. But just a few things about this little passage that I just want to bring out to you. The city of Hebron. I think we have a map. There it is. The city of Hebron was one of six cities of refuge in Israel. It was a town, and the word Hebron in Hebrew means fellowship or friendship. And Hebron is the place where David is included back in fellowship and friendship with his nation of Israel. The place that God directs him back to means friendship and fellowship. And it's in that place that he's restored and united back with his own people in the city of refuge in the city of Hebron. A city of refuge, let me tell you about them very quickly. In the law back then, if someone, let me read, in the case of deliberate murder, the law permitted the avenger of blood to exact punishment. So if you kill my brother, I've got permission to come and get you and take revenge. Essentially, a life for a life. But to guard against a miscarriage of justice, cities of refuge were appointed where the accused could flee so that his case could be considered properly away from the emotions that death always brings. These cities of refuge were designed to provide divine protection for the manslayer. So there were these six nations set up, six cities set up within the nation that if you said, did something and by accident caused someone else to die, you were not at fault, it was not your, your to blame, you could run to this city of refuge and in the city of refuge you would be guaranteed a fair trial, you would be guaranteed safety and you'd be guaranteed protection. And they would meet and they would um, have a court case and they said, okay, not guilty. You could live in that city of refuge and no one would be allowed to touch you and harm you. But if you left that city of refuge, you were open side. They were allowed to come and take revenge on you. So it was created to give you a safe place for when something had happened and it wasn't your fault. It was a city of refuge. Now for you and I today, Jesus is our city of refuge. We don't have towns that we flee to like that. But it says this, that just as the cities were open to all who fled to them for safety, it is Christ who provides safety to all who come to him for refuge from sin and its punishment. And just like in these cities, our case is properly considered. But the difference is here is that our trial and our case doesn't look at our circumstance and our situations. What it looks at now is because of the sacrifice Jesus has made, we don't have a case to answer. So the city of refuge back then for David, for us, is now a relationship with Jesus Christ. And we've been given divine protection because of what he has done. So in Hebrews, when Paul writes this, he says, We who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold on to the hope that lies before us. It's talking about we flee to God for refuge. We sung in that song earlier this morning, that new song, that we find refuge in our God. That's what they're talking about. We have a great confidence in what he's done for us, confidence in the refuge we have found in him. 
here's the thing. David had been treated like a criminal, even though he had done nothing wrong. For years, he had been having an injustice done to him. He shouldn't have had to live in another land. He shouldn't have been on the run. He had done nothing wrong. He'd been a loyal, faithful servant, but he was treated like a criminal. And I think it's no coincidence that God brings him back to a city of refuge to reunite him to the fellowship of the nation of Israel to begin being king because God is a restorer of people. And the injustice that was done to him, God brings justice and says, no, from the city of Hebron, I will make you king. From the city of Hebron, I will begin the thing that I promised over you as a small child will begin to happen now in this place. Hebron means fellowship and friendship, and it was a city of refuge for David that day. He was reunited back to what God had for him. It says he begins by being made king over Judah, not over all of Israel. And I want to point out that that's a start. It's certainly better than living in a cave or in a foreign land, but it's not the full picture. See, sometimes we have to be prepared to start with what God has available now. I think too many times we miss out in life because we don't do what God wants us to do because we're waiting for the finished product. David was told, you will be king over all Israel. And now today he's offered one small fraction of that promise. He could have said, no, I'm going to wait till the whole thing's on offer and then I'll step into it. But no, he took the little bit that was on offer, trusting God that he would complete the whole story. And in our lives, we get presented with little opportunities, little steps along the way where God asks us to step into things. And we're looking around and we're going, this isn't all that you've promised. This isn't the full dream that I had. This isn't the whole word that was spoken over me. But if it's a start, it's enough. You can step into it and trust God that he will complete what he has started within you. David stepped in that day and became king over Judah. And he trusted God that in his time and his purpose, which by the way was seven years later, he would become king over all of Israel. Jesus said these words, If you are faithful in little things, you will be faithful in large ones. But if you are dishonest in little things, you won't be honest with greater responsibilities. David started by being king over Judah only part of the promise. And his reign as king started with a civil war. What a great way to begin, isn't it? Start with going, okay, here's a fraction of what I promised you. And for the rest of it, you're going to have to have a fight to get it. Great. But he stepped into it. He took it. He began to lead from the city of Hebron. He took what God had made available to him and trusted that the future would take care in God's timing and his purpose. 2 Samuel 3 verse 1, we read this. That was the beginning of a long war between those who were loyal to Saul and those loyal to David. As time passed, David became stronger and stronger, while Saul's dynasty became weaker and weaker. Whose team do you want to be on? Any takers for Saul's army? No, no one. David is winning the war. And we can read that and think, isn't that great? David got stronger and stronger. I want to be on David's team. But it's not all smooth sailing. Because any fight, any battle, there's stuff going on. And David has two of his men, their commanders in his army, who are not following orders. They're taking matters into their own hand. They're doing what they think is best, not what their king tells them to do. Their names are Joab and Abishai, the two sons of Zariah. And it really starts to bother David that he's got men under his authority, not following instructions, not doing what they're told. And in 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 39, we read this. Today, 
Though I am the anointed king, I am weak. And these sons of Zariah are too strong for me. David's inability to confront and deal with these two sons, these two men, much later in his life comes back to hurt him. And we'll get to that probably in part 54 of this series. (laughs) But for today, I want you to notice this. David says about being weak. In the same chapter, we read that David is becoming stronger and stronger. But by his own admission, he is weak. Though I am the anointed king, I am weak. It's okay to be both strong and weak at the same time. In fact, it's perfectly normal. Some of us need to give ourselves permission to be weak sometimes, to acknowledge that we're struggling, to acknowledge that there's areas of our life where we feel weak. The Apostle Paul understood the power of weakness. Second Corinthians, he said this, My grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I am glad to boast about my weakness, so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weakness and in the insults, hardships, and persecutions and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. David was getting made stronger and stronger every day. But in the middle of that, he was able to acknowledge that he was weak and there was areas where he needed help. Spurgeon says this, weakness and divine anointing stand together. Sometimes in our greatest moment of weakness is also our greatest space of being anointed and used by God. We don't need to hide our weakness. It's actually healthy to be aware of them. But at the same time, we should never let our weakness stop us from doing what God has called us to do. David was both strong and weak at the same time. Let me read you a little bit more of how um, Spurgeon talks about this. You are never more mistaken than when you think yourselves to be strong. And you are never nearer the truth than when you have the very lowest views of yourself. When you are stripped and emptied and poured from vessel to vessel... It is then that you are where you ought to be. When you can say, I can do nothing apart from him, and yet can feel that you can do everything with him, then you are at the point of safety. You are on the eve of triumph and honor. God is with you and will greatly bless you as long as you know where your great strength lies. David knew where his strength came from. David knew that though he was weak, He had a God who was making him stronger and stronger, was fighting his cause, was building him up. We read in 2 Samuel 4 that as the war continues, Saul's son, Ishibabeth, is killed. He he dies. And we read in 1 Samuel 5 what happens, 2 Samuel 5, what happens next. Then all the tribes of Israel went to David at Hebron. This is all the tribes of Israel. And told him, we are your own flesh and blood. In the past when Saul was our king, you were the one who really led the forces of Israel. And the Lord told you, you will be the shepherd of my people Israel. You will be Israel's leader. So there at Hebron, King David made a covenant before the Lord with all the elders of Israel. And they anointed him king of Israel. David is anointed king over all Israel. 
the promise that was spoken over him as a boy, as a teenager, is now complete. Some 20-something years later, he's come full circle from living as a fugitive in a cave to now being crowned on the throne, king over all the nation. Everything that was taken from him, everything that he thought was lost, everything that he thought, how is this ever going to be happened? I'm meant to be king of this nation and I'm living in a cave, fleeing away from it. It was all restored and he was crowned king in Hebron. He moves from Hebron and it says that he claims the city of Jerusalem as his home. Last scripture, 2 Samuel 5, 9 to 10. David made the fortress his home. He called it the city of David. He extended the city, starting at the supporting terraces and working inward. Verse 10, And David became more and more powerful because the Lord God of heaven's armies was with him. If the creative team want to come. The Lord was with him. You know, as we wrap up this little sermon on going from being a fugitive to being crowned king, the thing that I look back on and, and realize is that, that last verse, because the Lord of God's heaven's armies was with him. That's the most powerful thing and that's the biggest, most important thing in that whole thing. Because the truth is that God was always with him. The truth is that God was with him in the field when he was looking after the sheep. The truth is God was with him on the battlefield when he faced Goliath. The truth is God was with him when he was hiding in the cave. The truth is God was with him when he was living in foreign lands. The truth is God was with him when he saw his town burn to the ground. The truth is God was with him when he was now crowned king over Israel. God was with him in all of those circumstances. The circumstances changed. The outward appearance of David's life looked very different over those years. But the one constant thing was that God was with him. The Lord of God's armies was with him through it all. And the same God who sustained David through all of those seasons promises to be with us. You know, I think in life we give our feelings and our circumstances way too much authority. We let our circumstances and our feelings tell us whether Jesus is real, whether God is with us. Our feelings and our circumstances do not determine God's presence. Did you know that? God's character and his word is the thing that determines his presence. And his word says he will never leave you nor forsake you. We've been reading this book by Alicia Brick Cole and she says this, we need to revoke the authority we have given our feelings to tell us whether or not God is in the room. Your feelings do not determine God's presence. God's presence is with us. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us. For David to go through all of those circumstances, the highs, the lows, the loss, the grief, the joy, all the things that we go through in, in life, the emotions of life, to know that you can go through the highs and the lows with knowing that God is with you is enough to sustain you, is enough to carry you, is enough to give you a hope for a future. And today I want to finish by reminding ourselves, not asking for God's presence, but just let us be aware of His presence. Let us be aware that God who promised to be with us is with us. Not only at 10 a.m. on a Sunday morning, but he's with us on Wednesday. He's with us on Thursday. He's with us on Monday morning when you go back to work. He is with you. He lives within you. And we can, we can face any circumstance. We can face any challenge knowing, like David, that the Lord of heaven's armies is with us. He is on our side. We've sung about it this morning. 
But as we walk out of this place this morning, we need to know that he really is with us, despite of our feelings and despite of our circumstances. I want to pray to finish this morning. I'm going to ask us to close our eyes. And I'm going to ask that, God, you would remind us. You would reveal more of who you are to us this morning. That we would live with an awareness of your presence in our world and in our life. That we would know that you are with us. That we would know that you would never leave us nor forsake us. We would know that whether we're living in a cave or we're living in a palace, you are with us. We know that whether we're winning or whether we're losing, you are with us. We know that whether we feel amazing or whether we feel like rubbish, you are still with us. You are with us in the weeping. You are with us in the rejoicing. You are with us in every season. And we thank you for that truth. It is that truth that we hold on to today, that we choose to live our life out of, that you will never leave us nor forsake us. And while we've got our eyes closed this morning, if you are here today and you've never made a decision to invite Jesus into your heart,